0: Christianity, following Jesus, is not about mystical speculation or, or or a secret knowledge. It is fundamentally about
1: imitating Christ. The humanity and divinity of Jesus, today on In the Shadow of the Cross. Shadow of the Cross. I am Lauren Rosser, and I am here with my friends Jim Durkin, hello, and Charlie Chaplin. He's in. He's in a silent movie, so he can't talk. (laughs) It's Michael Harden. Hey, Michael. Hey, guys. So we thought today would be cool to talk about the humanity and the divinity of Christ. There's there's two ditches that you can fall into, and basically, if you remove the humanity from Christ and just Entirely focus on the divinity, you go into one ditch. And if you remove the divinity from Christ and entirely focus on the humanity, then you fall into another ditch. It's it's important to to look at both, and so that's what we want to do today. And I think this is a cool topic. I think it's a a really good one to look at because um, I've I've seen people get trapped and fall into either ditch, and uh, so I think it's a good one to to talk about. So. So what do you guys think? Um, why why is it important to have basically standing on two feet, one one on each side of, of this, one in the divinity, one in the humanity? Why, why is this important?
0: Let me suggest something here that might help our conversation as we go forward. When you go back into just your New Testament, you don't seem to have any conversation about the relationship between Jesus' humanity and what we would call his divinity. There doesn't seem to be that conversation happening anywhere. But when you get into the late 2nd century, now post-Justin Martyr, post-150, there's a conversation that starts to occur about defining what it means for Jesus to be human and what it means for Jesus to be divine and how the divinity and humanity relate. The Gnostics, who are really prevalent at this time, are going to deny the humanity of Jesus and just be purely, you know, spirit divine. And that will play itself out later, uh, about 300 years later, when the Orthodox tradition under Athanasius and his battle against Arius really turns uh, Jesus substantially. I mean, we know the word homoousius that Constantine coins of the same substance as the Father. And then what really gets interesting here, and this has been shown by um, Joseph Jungmann in his book, The, The Place of Christ in Liturgical Prayer. When you look at the prayers of the church, as you move from the fourth through the sixth centuries, Jesus' humanity is less and less, and his divinity is on the rise. And so we see this both in the artwork of the time and uh, also the theology of the time. And as a result, the church has a desperate need to fill that space, that human space. And so this is when the cult of the Virgin Mary and the cult of the saints begins to really develop, is in late antiquity here. So there's that problem. And then the other problem, of course, we see in Jewish Christianity in the early church, uh, the so-called Ebionites or the Ebionite heresy, which basically says that uh, Jesus is, you know, not God. He's an agent. He's an agent of God, like Moses, you know, like David. He's, there's agency there, but he's not, not God. Okay, only God is God. Monotheism. Now, these people, both play out in the modern world in North American Protestantism, and they have effects uh, on the way we do church. They have the effects on the way we do prayer and spirituality. They have effects on our ethics. So this topic is not just old and boring, and for theologians, it's very, very important uh, to talk about. We, We are asking about your jesus is your jesus uh, a distortion and if your jesus is a distortion is it any wonder that your view of god is distorted and your view of the work of the holy spirit is distorted because if you don't start with at least a healthy view of christology you're just going to end up in with, with deleterious effects everywhere
1: Th- that's really good. Um, where where does this play out? Where do you see this at work today in in modern day Christianity?
0: Okay, two simple. One the belief in some traditions that we possess um, the divine mind. okay because of Paul's language we have the mind of Christ okay? that that belief. Now, that belief can be, it's in the early church. It's with a character named Apollinarius, who was very, very Athanasian, very, very Orthodox, super, super, super Orthodox, so Orthodox that he says when the Logos came into the flesh, the Logos assumed everything, but Jesus' mind was divine. Jesus' mind never was, quote, fallen. It was always divine. Well, that creates a problem because our minds are fallen. And then Gregory of Nyssa, of course, comes out with this great quote. If, 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 if it's not assumed in the incarnation, it can't be healed. That's one. Our, um, um, second would be our, our more liberal friends who have um, tossed out the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Jesus is still dead. You know, he was only human, and he was a good human. He may be a prophetic human. He may even be, you know, favored by God, but he's still dead. And so they have a dead, they have a dead Jesus they look back on. I found this to be very, very true in the Mennonite tradition, uh, the liberal Mennonite tradition. Um, Jesus was a, a great prophet. He had a great social ethic. You know, he was like, uh, yeah.
1: How, how have you seen this play out, Jim? It's, uh, it's, an, it's
2: an interesting thing because if you just take what's uh, kind of delivered from the pulpit, you know, fully God, fully man, boom, end of story, um, without really examining it at all, Okay, what does that really mean? Um, then you have the—I'm uh, going to use a word here, and it's—we've uh, used it many times on our podcasts, meaning something else. But I'm going to use. Then you have the back door, or that you have the scapegoat, <laughs> if you will, oh, huh. of um, well. <laughs> Of course he did this. Of course he did this. Of course. I mean, he was fully God. I'm not fully God, so I can't do that. You know, whatever that is. Um, And it, it can be anything from uh, healing the sick or, uh, or uh, knowing their thoughts, you know? And so, well, of course he knew their thoughts. He's God. Yeah. You know, yeah. and uh, two uh, walking on water, you know and, 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 or, or, or calming the storm. It's like, well of course, because God creates storms, he can he can stop them. <laughs> I've heard I've heard people say that, you know. Uh, so okay, let's see. So he's a sound asleep in the boat and he's like, okay, I would like, while I'm sleeping here, I would like to scare the bejesus out of my disciples, <laughs> and then show them my power. So let's see, let's see how scared I can get them. You know, and, and 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 then you know, so it's it's like I I wish people could see me. I'll whirl my finger. It's like, Ooh, okay. Come on, wind, stronger, waves, crash over this boat, come on. And then it's like, Jesus, wake up. Oh, okay, Oh, what's going (laughs) on? Oh, there's a storm. Oh, my gosh, a storm. Stop, peace. It's like, are you kidding me? So then we go to the other side of it. It's like, no, he... Uh, I'll put I'll put a few scriptures together, all taken out of context, of course, but but nonetheless. So he emptied himself, no reputation. Um, he was tempted in all points, like as we are, yet without sin. But do not say when you're tempted that you're tempted of God because God cannot be tempted. Therefore, Jesus could not possibly be God. So the most he can be is because he emptied himself and took on the form of of, of flesh, of human, the most he could be is um, a man who like us can have god residing in him but he can't be god because he was tempted and you're like okay you're you're kind of you know it's like or and then i'll i'll stop here or it's just a mystery we'll never understand it so I'm I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Uh later I'm going to introduce a couple of scriptures uh because they're scriptures that I've I've wrestled with because in 50 years of ministry I've never heard anybody teach on them. And it I'd be very interested to have a dialogue with uh, Michael uh in this podcast over over those couple of scriptures. So I'll throw it back to you.
0: Well I went and I went and looked at both texts and um, and I I have a hint or at least I think maybe I know where you're going with the text, but maybe not. So let me read those two texts that you had sent over that we, we can look at. And they're both from first Isaiah um, the first one is chapter. What do I have here? Chapter seven. or chapter. How come I can't find the first one? I know nine. I remember. I've got nine six. But where's right. the first nine, one? Right, nine six.
2: But I think the other one was uh, was it seven fourteen?
0: Yeah, that was it. That was it. Yeah. Okay. So here's seven fourteen. Now, I'm not getting worried about context. At all here in terms of Isaiah, because we're dealing with a hermeneutic that doesn't give a darn about context. (laughs) 7.14 of Isaiah, I'll read at least verse 13. And Isaiah said here then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary mortals that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Look. The young woman is with child and shall bear a son, and shall name him Immanuel. That's seven hundred fourteen. Nine six, and this is from the revised standard or the new revised standard nine six, of course, very familiar to us both of these from the Christmas narrative in church. For a child has been given to us, a son given to us, authority rests upon his shoulders, and he is named wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace peace Um, it continues actually his authority shall grow continually and there will be endless peace in the throne of david and his kingdom he will establish and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forward and forevermore and then most interestingly to me is isaiah's next line the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And I'm, I'm immediately well aware Isaiah's back into the violent God thinking here, you know, so let's keep that in mind as we have this figure on a throne that's going to bring everlasting peace. How's he going to bring it?
1: Right. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. Cause uh, um, yeah, we have to think that Isaiah is writing from a time when he's not Met Jesus, <laughs> no. so so he does not have that hermeneutic of, of the Father that that Jesus presents. Yeah, first
0: Isaiah, the chapters one through thirty nine, and especially uh, carries with it um, uh, the, the the theme of the Janus faced God, but it the, the 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 good side of God is. Um, in a sense, bigger than the shadow side of God. Then you get to 2nd Isaiah. 2nd Isaiah now, which is the servant songs that we know from chapters 40 through 55, 2nd Isaiah almost entirely uh, eliminates the violent God theme. Interesting. Almost entirely, yeah. And then 3rd Isaiah, it's, it's there a little bit in the background, but as you move through Isaiah through the three schools of Isaiah, you know you, you see this movement this removing God away from violence more and more as you move through and and I think that's that's
1: really cool. yeah, that is, yeah, that, is. that is really cool yeah. so Jim what, what are your thoughts on, on that Well
2: so you you have... Of course, as Michael said, uh, both of these portions of scripture are, are familiar through the Christmas narrative and whatever. Um, so, starting with uh, the first, the first verse there in, in, in chapter seven, uh, he'll be called Emmanuel, God with us.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: If you put a period there, <laughs> okay? You're like, well, in in the argument, he's God with us, okay? Now, here's 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 the question that's been on my mind for a a good long time now, and it has to do with nine. What is it? Nine six?
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
2: yeah. He will be called Everlasting Father, Almighty God. He will be called. The child will be called. And it's like, how do you reconcile? At at what point when he was walking on the earth, did anybody recognize or call him? Almighty God, did anybody call him the Everlasting Father? Um, did anybody call him the Prince of Peace? And and it, it, so so you, you see what I'm saying. Here it's prophesied that he will be called these things, and my question is. The closest Peter seemed to get is, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Flesh and blood is not re- revealed, but, but you know, my spirits reveal this to you. But I don't think I've ever seen anywhere where anybody called Jesus the everlasting father, including Himself, if you will, because he goes away in the you know in the early part of the day or whatever to go and talk to his father, the Almighty God, the everlasting Father. You know? Hi, I'm and,
0: Jesus. I'm going to go have a conversation with myself now.
2: With myself, <laughs> yeah. It's like, well, every new ager does that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so. Color once, me skeptical at this point. So once, once again, all I'm saying is, you know, on, the, on this podcast, we have uh, addressed flatline reading of Scripture and um, taking the time to, to examine it. Okay, what's being said here? What perspective was Isaiah coming from when he spoke these things? Um, and is there fulfillment of it uh, later on in, as you said, Michael, in conversations?
0: Well, let's, let's acknowledge, first of all, Matthew is going to use uh, these Isaiah texts. And he's, gonna, yes. he's going to exegete or midrash on them the way a Jew would, okay? Um, there are only five potential places in the New Testament that that Christ, not Jesus, but Christ, is referred to as God. And each one of those, or three of the five at least, have very questionable punctuation. You can go either way. Uh, and that only leaves two texts, and both of those are have issues of interpretation in translation. So... There's no direct uh, naming of Jesus as God in the New Testament. He never calls himself that, ever. In fact, when someone tries to, to uh, say, you know, you're good, Jesus ain't no one good but God, you know. Um,
2: hey, early let, church, me, let me interject hmm, something.
0: Hmm.
2: He said he didn't even know when he, when the rapture was going to happen. Only God knew that. <laughs> I'm sorry. I had to go there. You know, I don't fire me I was so, proud, I'll I, leave. Was so I'll leave I was so proud own.
0: of us until now. You
2: know? <laughs> <laughs> I'll leave on my own. I'm.
1: <laughs> well, what about the? Uh, What about the passage that I always heard in Sunday school uh, used as as saying that Jesus was saying he was God when he says, before Abraham was, I am?
0: Yeah. Okay. So the Johannine gospel, the fourth gospel, uh, the gospel of John, as people know it, um, different different can of worms. Here's the thing. Remember, we are dealing with Jews. late Second Temple Jews, okay? So we have to learn to think like they thought. They were not thinking in Greek philosophical terms, okay? okay? When they were thinking about the relationship of Jesus to God, they were thinking about it in terms of sender and agency. The Father sent the Son, Now, they're not going, oh, the Son was everlasting. Oh, the Son was created. Oh, the Son wasn't the Son. He was the Logos, and then he united with human flesh, and then he became. You don't have any of that. You just don't have that metaphysical nonsense going on. What you do have is the sending by the Father and the mission of the Son. Those are the two things you have, and that's the focus. The relationship is on the focus of the Son as an ambassador, Of the father. That's the focus. Now, an ambassador has full rights and full authority. An ambassador can speak on behalf of the emperor. Okay? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Same concept. We're dealing with agency. Agency matters. Where did you come from? Who sent you? Or the counter response. Well, where did John get his agency from? Humans or God? Right? It's all about agency. Where's your authority come from? Where do you derive it from? Because you're obviously doing things that we normally attribute to divinity, to God, but you're doing them. Okay, but they're not asking about it metaphysically. They're always asking about it in terms of his mission and the authentication of that mission. Okay, that's that's one thing to keep in mind. Second, um, it's a fascinating thing about the miracle stories in the in the gospels because they're really they can be broken down into different types you have physical healing of ailments and diseases you have nature uh, miracles the stilling of the storm and that kind of stuff that Jim talked about earlier and then you have others that that have no apparent function like turning water into wine right nobody's getting healed and uh, you know you, you know maybe maybe both the stilling of the storm and the problem of the wine they, they I imagine somebody felt like they were having some kind of apocalyptic moment when they ran out of wine <laughs> right. but, uh, but you see what I'm saying. so you got to keep that in mind. then the second thing you have to do with regard to to uh, the question about miracles is this. Um, the Catholic Church wisely, has really wisely always taken the position that there are miracles everywhere. They happen all the time. Mm-hmm. They've really wisely taken that position for almost 2,000 years. Well, 1,700 years they've been around. They acknowledge Mary's face on a piece of toast. You know, they acknowledge bleeding statues. Mm-hmm. I mean, those are these, you know, these kinds of things. Um, the... Liberal, the the post enlightenment tradition, um, looks at these events, and um, basically says, "Oh wow, these are just fantastic events. Nobody can duplicate them. They don't really happen. It's all superstition." And so we we don't take them into account when discussing the character or the mission of Jesus. Okay, and then you know you have your others who. Uh, think that um, they are actually empowered to do miracles all day long every day. (coughs) All of this, all of of these views about the miracles are are bad to be. Well, (sighs) look, Jesus could do what he did, not because he was divine, but because he was a human being fully submitted to the will of the Father. When we did our exegesis in Luke back in my classroom earlier this year, I noted in the Gospel of Luke how there's, in Luke 10, Jesus gives the disciples authority over demons. And they come back from that event, oh, they're thrilled. Man, they're just casting demons out right and left. And then the end of that chapter, a guy comes to Jesus says, I tried to get your disciples to cast out demons, and they couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. And I asked myself, Why? What happened, at least within the narrative, that they could and then they couldn't? And as I'm looking at this Luke 10 passage, I see Jesus says, don't take your purse, your shoes, your staff, nothing. You don't take anything with you. Nothing that anybody would covet and nothing that you would have to defend. Right? Yeah. So so they are now completely nonviolent. Right? Right? They have no yeah. knives, no staff. They're, com- they're completely nonviolent. Now they've entered into the reign of God. And that, now they have authority to deal with the demonic. But then they come back. And what's the first thing they're going to do? They're going to put their shoes on okay. put their knife in their belt, right? They'll go right back into the old. And as a result, now there's no healing that can take place. So I'm I'm just saying we want to not use the, the miracles as proof of Jesus divinity as much as we would of um his some complete submission to the father's will that is what brings about the change that allows him to participate in that that ethos of so- sozo salvation healing go for it dirk
2: so a a question at that point comes up then Uh, I believe it's Paul where he begins to talk about his qualifications to be an apostle. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And one of them is, you know, the miracles that were done Mm -hmm. at my hand Mm -hmm. and somehow that qualifies him Mm -hmm. um, with what you just said. Uh, how do you factor in Paul saying that miracles that he he did were done at his hand uh qualifies no. him for some position of ministry in the in you know in the church of the day because yeah, okay. i think a lot of charismatics kind of use that
0: yeah they do they do yeah. um that's where Paul says, you know, you've seen the signs, wonders, and uh, mm-hmm. and, and the semia, the dunamis, uh, whatever the terms are he's using there. Yeah. Yeah, so, so um, uh, Paul's argument, and, and this, is, this is, when you look at Paul's, ar- we're just talking about Paul's argument here. We're getting kind of off track on the bigger, greater topic, but that's okay. Exegete in text is good. When you look at Paul's argument in the Corinthian letters, which is where this one comes from, you know. That Paul makes very, very clear, especially in 2 Corinthians, um, that when he's going to tell the narrative about himself, he's not going to use boasting. He's not going to use right. uh, um, that, that kind of language, okay? Mm-hmm. And in fact, in 2 Corinthians, when it comes to this very thing about you've seen these things, then he says, but I'm going to tell you about a guy and had a vision, and he ended up getting lowered over the wall, right? Mm-hmm. Now this is uh, this is absolutely humiliating, okay. And Paul turns to this this escaping. Normally, normally it's the soldier that goes over the wall first that's the real hero. They breach the wall. Mm-hmm. Here, Paul is exactly the opposite. He's deserting, right? He says, "This is this is this is, this is me, right? This is my this. Is how big my fear was. This is me." He, he, he when when paul uses language like look i've done these things he's just simply saying i i too have participated in this authority that's in the realm of this age of god that's, that's with us i've too okay. not just you guys but me too now just as an aside if matthew's gospel has an anti-pauline element to it if 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 it does and i think it kind of might if it does, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, when, uh, quote, Jesus says, um, not everyone who does miracles in my name you know, will I recognize, you know? And um, I'm, that could be Matthew's way of dealing with this claim by Paul, I've done miracles, right? Could be. I'm not saying it is. But n- nevertheless, Paul's use of miracles at that point is, has to be framed by his greater use of, of um, the, his sufferings. second Corinthians uh, chapter 2:14 all the way through the, through, really, I mean the whole letter uh, is about apostolic suffering, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, so if you're going to say, hey, we've got you know signs and wonders in our congregation, I'm going to be going, where's the suffering? Show me the suffering, who's suffering? Because
2: mm-hmm.
0: mm-hmm. you, you don't get that stuff without suffering.
1: Good sorry point. that's a that's a really good point
2: yeah so so go back then to what you were saying about uh the christ and being um fully surrendered mm-hmm. uh and and that being the the uh source or the point of his authority uh, go go back and pick up on that thought
0: Okay. So, when I'm when I think of the relationship of the human to the divine in the figure of Jesus, here's here's what's really interesting. I observed this many many years ago. Whenever I'm in the New Testament and I'm looking for texts that emphasize the humanity of Jesus, all I kept seeing were ones that seemed to emphasize his divinity. But then I go looking for the ones that really make clear his divinity and I see all the ones that seemed to emphasize his humanity. That's when it dawned on me that the way we're looking at these texts, we're going to get this other thing at us. It's like this dialectic coming at us, right? It's like you can't have one without the other, okay? So so let me just just say that. Um, As much as I I value what the uh, early fathers were doing with the language of their worldview, which was Platonism or Neoplatonism, in one form or another, and they were trying to talk about the relationship of of this figure, Jesus, to a divinity. I I can appreciate they're using this language of, you know, being and and energies, hypostases. you know. Eventually, uh, you know, Tertullian will introduce the Latin term persona, person, into the discussion, which the East never accepted, by the way. The Eastern Church, it's not three persons in one. It's three hypostases, three modes of being, mm. three ways, aspects in one, not persons. The person concept is in the Western doctrine, and it's always created problems, always yeah. created problems. Um, uh, Tert- Tertullian was one of those guys I think church history could have done without on a lot of levels, to be honest with you um don't have a lot of respect for Tertullian. So when we when we come as I said earlier, we want to come at this with this Jewish framework. We want to ask uh, about the power and authority of Jesus. Is it is it because he's somehow ontologically God or is it because As Hebrews says, he learned discipline through suffering. He learned how to suffer in life and still trust his father. He knew he was loved, and he lived in that. And that's what allows him to go on this incredible mission of claiming that he's speaking with the authority of the father and to not even carry a sword. Wow. Wow. I mean, nobody, nobody in the ancient world went out without a sword or a knife. Everybody carried one.
1: Yeah.
0: You know, there isn't a Native American that went (laughs) out without a knife, not for killing purposes, but for, Mm -hmm. you know, survival purposes. Oh, yeah. In the ancient world, everybody had a knife. Some had bigger knives. Mm -hmm. You know? Mm -hmm. And here's Jesus, he doesn't even have that.
1: Right, yeah, yeah, because yeah. you even you even read in, in Paul's letters about him talking about the dangers of you know on the road and, and stuff. So it becomes mm-hmm. very clear that mm-hmm. even without having a huge background in in their in their world, that you could see it there that they they very much had danger around them. So it, it would make logical sense to walk around with a sword or a knife.
0: I've I've I'll tell you, getting off topic. It, it does. It's all good. I've often wondered in the parable of the Good Samaritan if that actually didn't happen to Jesus at some point, oh, where wow. he was beat up and left on the road for dead, and a Samaritan helped him after a priest and a Levite walked by. Hmm. I've often wondered. Wow. You know, because we see Jesus kind of waltzing through life,
2: mm-hmm. you know,
0: and we don't know mm-hmm. his backstory. We don't know the trauma he went through. You know, we That's just don't.
1: True. That's true, because we we read about him learning obedience through the things he suffered. The
0: things he suffered, and yeah. so
1: it's like, but we don't pick up his story really until uh, until right. he's thirty years old and and starting his ministry. So it's right. like, well, what was going on in that whole season before? No, that's 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 really makes you think.
0: Yeah, and we, we can also, I've noted this in previous talks, that the virgin birth story is used in the 2nd century and following for several hundred years as an affirmation of Jesus' humanity, not his divinity. It's only after uh, the hyper-Athanasian uh, late 4th century that the virgin birth then becomes an attempt to prove his divinity. Look, he is Emmanuel, God with us. And that means God is with us, and that means Jesus is God. Well, that, you know, that means anybody's name that ends in L, God, that's okay. literally true. No, no, Ezekiel, are we going to do the same thing with Ezekiel that we do with Emmanuel? You you name your kid. This is a happy time. God is with us. We're going to name our kid God is with us because God is, you know, it's not, it's not trained to do ontology. You see what I'm saying? <laughs> right. <laughs>
1: Now Jim Jim touched on this but I just want to I want to ask this question. So for the person out there listening um who's hearing the discussion of divinity and, and humanity why does let's take one side why does the humanity of Christ why does that matter?
0: Who's touching this with a 10-foot pole no, I'm kidding. <laughs>
1: Uh
2: Michael you're going to have to help me but doesn't uh, John address that in First, Second, Third John? One, one, one of those. Uh, doesn't doesn't he talk about? Uh, you know, if you say he did not come in the flesh, yes. Uh, what is he? What is is John saying there?
0: Well, okay, so. Um
2: obviously we, historically there was a group of people that were saying
0: that yeah jesus has not come in the flesh yeah this is this is that gnosticism that begins to enter early christianity already in the 40s okay okay gnosticism not full blown 2nd 3rd 4th century gnosticism not that at all but the basic roots of Gnostic thinking. Now, I tend to follow the scholars who trace Gnosticism to Jewish Christianity in a very specific form, Samaritan Jewish Christianity, okay? Mm,
2: okay.
0: And when you you look at the later Gnostic writings, even though uh, this kind of thinking has gone out into, you know, Greek and barbarian soil, It will take on its own character, but particularly down in Egypt. Nevertheless, one thing that's fascinating is the use of all the names for God and all these other made-up names for God uh, in these documents. And sometimes there are a a, a document in the Nashamadi Library. You know how people do this when they pray. Father, King of all glory. Majestic and splendor, you know, highest. We do all these titles, right? Okay, some of these documents do two or three hundred different names for God. Like, got to make sure we get the right name. So we're going to guess this one, this one, this one. You know, it's, it's stunning at that. Wow. Yeah. The, so we're not talking about that here in Corinth, but what we are talking about in Corinth, what we are talking about in Ephesus in the first century, where the Johannine Gospels attached to Ephesus. What we're talking about here is a way of thinking that A, still incorporates the notion of vengeance in divinity because the four articles of Samaritanism, the fourth one is the day of the vengeance of our God.
1: Okay. Oh, okay.
0: Yeah. And, and second, you're, you've got now a very specialized way of doing Christianity. God has revealed to me the secrets, and I can reveal them to you. Mm. This kind of Masonic. <laughs> uh-huh. Okay? Uh-huh. Okay. That's, that's, that's the early form. Now, what that means and what Paul understood was that you, you cannot, cannot have the Christian faith articulated in this frame. It won't work because this frame is all about knowledge. And Christianity, he's a Jew. He's a Jew. Remember, what's important for for the, for the Jews of, of, of the Second Temple period? Life, living, lifestyle, ethics, mm-hmm. how we live in relation to each other. That's what's important. All the speculative stuff the Greeks do, the Greeks do. But you don't see the rabbis really doing that. You know what I mean? So it's mm-hmm. the same for Paul. Christianity, following Jesus, is not about mystical speculation or 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 a secret knowledge it is fundamentally about imitating Christ about living his life today there's a number of metaphors and ways to do that the spirit indwells us we follow him there's just, you know the the dedicate discipleship paradigm there's many ways to talk about this but that's the focus so we have to we have to say that any form of christianity that is gnostic in its orientation is false Now, another element of gnosticism is dualism the spirit is good matter is evil so how could god how could jesus who's a human being he bleeds he comes he spits he vomits how could jesus be god that's impossible and we, we know in Greek philosophy, the phrase, the Logos became flesh, is like, right? Okay. That's like telling me I have to eat broccoli for dinner the rest of my life. You know, I just, I'll be mortified. Okay. Ain't going to happen. And for the Greek, the Logos or divinity entering, no, no, no. Demigods, half God, half human, sure. Half Minotaur, half human equals God. Yeah, sure. But, but, but the Logos and flesh, no. No, and so there were those who denied that Jesus was the Messiah come in the flesh. Jewish Christians, okay. again, I'm not sure in 1 first John that we're dealing with a full blown um, uh, ontological argument of, of you know, but but it's I think it's certainly implicit there. Okay. Um. Notice the writer doesn't say they deny God come in the flesh. They say Jesus Christ, Jesus Messiah. Uh-huh. So it could uh-huh. be the messiahship that in within the Jewish community, the messiahs come in the flesh. Okay, he's been here. So, yeah. but either way, you're exactly right, Jim. You do have that incipient Gnosticism already creeping into the early church uh, through Samaritan Christianity. Now, there's other, there's other great benefits to Samaritan Christianity, which is influential on the fourth gospel, influential on the gospel of Luke.
1: So the average Christian today would say, well, I'm not Gnostic, so why does it matter?
0: Well, I would ask them, what do, what do you understand by Gnosticism?
1: Ah, So, so yeah. <laughs> how would
0: you respond? How would you respond? What's Gnosticism to you?
1: Well, see now. If do you want my answer? Do you want what I think? The I want you think. Yeah. So say?
0: so let's go ahead and do a little prosa here.
1: Yeah, because uh, because if I were to say what the what I the average Christian would say, they would say, well, a Gnostic says a Gnosticism is about acquiring secret knowledge. And, True. And and, and, mm-hmm. and they would say that it's. Um, That It's about, uh, what what else would they say? Uh, it's saying that Jesus was just spirit that when he died on the cross, he just died as a spirit. He didn't die as a, as a human being. (laughs) Um, let's see what else, what else would be, uh, would be said, um, there was another one that slipped my mind. I uh, talked about the uh, yeah, secret knowledge. Um, now, because now, I, I mix it into some things that because I've learned since then, um, mm-hmm. like uh, now for me, I also know they talk about levels, uh, you know, you acquire knowledge to go up to the next level. Mm-hmm, and, and, mm-hmm. and I've seen that, though, actually, in especially in uh, charismatic circles, where they'll even use the phrase new level, new devil, you know, which <laughs> it's like uh, going up a level. Uh, it's kind of Gnostic there um but uh so so those are my immediate thoughts um jim do you have any any to add to that
2: no i think you pretty well covered it uh as at least from this perspective and i think that's michael's question from the perspective of the average christian what they think Gnosticism is yeah
0: So the first thing I want to ask that that you can, you can, you play the role, just play the role, both of you play the role, respond at, you know, at me the way you think they would. First thing I'd say is, um, what do you base your faith upon?
1: Uh, Now, answering according to to what the average Christian would say, I base my faith upon Jesus Christ's, his death, burial, resurrection, that he saved me from hell.
0: Oh, and where do you find that?
1: I find in it Bible.
0: in the Bible. Oh, so you're trusting the Bible?
2: Oh, absolutely. It's infallible. Oh.
0: Okay. So in other words, before I believe in Jesus, I gotta believe in the Bible.
1: Well, Jesus is the word and the Bible So
0: is Jesus the word. is the Bible. Is that what you're saying?
1: No, I'm saying that, that the Bible see- is yeah. I'm trying okay, to even argue with you.
0: Here's the question for you. Here's the question for you. If you are in that frame of mind, you, you, you are going to be, I could demonstrate that really what, what, what I'm, all I'm doing is I'm just challenging the concept of foundations. Okay. So after I sat and deconstructed your view of the Bible, I'd say, now what do you trust well, if I've done my job right, and I've opened your eyes, you're, you're not going to trust Scripture, because you haven't been reconstructed yet. You haven't been shown how to do that yet. You've right. only been shown that it can't be trusted, right? So now what do you do? So let's say I've done that with you, Lord, I've shown you can't trust Scripture, or Jim, you can't trust it. It's it's full of errors and theologies, and you can't trust it. Now what do you do?
1: Well, it, here's the thing I've run into, is is they'll say, well, you can't. Uh, well, but the way you know about Jesus is from the Bible.
0: I understand that, but I've just I've just decimated that argument. I could because you know I've done that before, right? You know, so I've just done. Now what? Now what? Where's your where's your where's your faith?
2: There, uh, there is uh, no now what because I tuned you out an hour ago. Uh, as a heretic who's arguing against the very foundation of faith because uh, how would i know jesus if it wasn't for the bible exactly that's exactly right the bible the bible is the inspired word of god and so you want to argue that well it's full of holes and it's you know, and it's this, and it's that, and it, you know, and 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 contradictions, and through, um, and I and I will give you this much, through all of the heretical, um, modern translations uh certainly your argument uh holds some water there's still holes in that can anyhow but it does hold some water yeah like in but, the living but bible but when you get back to the um original text of which um uh the the authorized 1611 king james version <laughs> uh Translated word for word the exact written text, uh, then your argument, uh, y- you know, you're you're ar- you don't even know what you're talking about.
0: I'm about so, ready to moonshot the camera on this one.
1: <laughs> I know you should hate hey. to say everybody, You should see Michael's expressions while Jim saying this because one, Jim, you're doing a fantastic, fantastic job, job doing yes. what I was trying yes. to bring out, and and Michael's over here dying. <laughs> Okay, so Michael,
2: you said play the role. There's yeah. the
1: role.
0: Okay, okay. then then the, the reality is you have secret knowledge.
2: Yes, absolutely. Therefore, you are Gnostic. Yeah, because every time I read it, the Holy Spirit's right there telling oh. me exactly what it means.
0: Happy, yeah. happy,
2: joy, joy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and you know what? Not only that. But when I go to church and my pastor starts preaching, he preaches the very thing the Holy Spirit showed me when I was reading that text. Yeah. So there's confirmation out of the mouth of two or more witnesses. Every word is established.
0: <laughs> okay. Well, you had me at hello. <laughs>
1: I love it. I love it. That was good.
2: Are we having fun yet? Oh, I'll give you another one. I'll give you – I'm going to go back 20 minutes. Jesus uh, learned obedience by the things he suffered. No. So I'm 9 or 10 years old. I'm sitting in Sunday school. And my Sunday school teacher – it was, by the way, it was the same one that – said that uh, the reason Jesus taught in parables was because he was talking to uh, poor, uneducated dirt farmers, and he had to make the principles of the kingdom understandable to them. So he talked about farming. (laughs) Okay. Are you ready for this? Jesus learned obedience by the things he suffered. That, young children, uh, is the same thing that you're doing. Every time your dad spanks you, you're suffering, and therefore you're learning obedience. When Jesus was a boy, Joseph had to spank him from time to time when he would do things little boys do, and so he learned obedience by the things that he suffered. Yep.
0: (laughs) Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with me. <laughs> Blessed are thou
1: right? I mean it's like
0: it's like help me Lord. I mean I you know, okay.
1: Yeah, that that's why this this is such a I mean, Jim, you did such a good job because it really shows why it's it's like the the can of worms that you're dealing with. You know, and that's why it becomes, it it almost becomes frustrating, you know, it's like absolute insanity. Don't even want to, I mean, I was talking to someone this week who is just burned by religion, you know, entrenched in everything Mm -hmm. we were just talking about and, you know, Mm -hmm. is is become Gnostic because of it all. And we we had a really good conversation, but it's like, just seeing the pain from all that junk that's been put on him. It's like, you know, and, and trying to dig your way through that it's, it's painful,
0: the example you just gave, Jim, Jim proves that uh, the podcast we did about a month ago—I don't know when we did it—but theology matters. Yes, it really yep. does. It does, and and when you teach when you teach theology like that, Sunday school teacher taught, you are not just teaching bad theology; you are damaging the psyches of children. Oh. You are planting horrid yeah. seeds, horrid seeds, and that is. Um, this is where the, the Protestant tradition has utterly, utterly, utterly failed. Uh, we, we, um, we think the senior pastor is the best. And if you're a youth pastor, that's good. But whoever wants to run in the children's department, you just go in there and do it. And when we ought to have the best theologians running the children's ministry.
2: That's true. Okay, so, so and let the let adults
0: me, be stupid amongst themselves.
2: Let me <laughs> let me add a slight bit to that. It's not whoever wants to do it, it's whoever the pulpit can manipulate into doing it.
0: Well, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Right. So so yep. so we got a whole bunch of codependents in there in children's <laughs> ministry.
2: <laughs> well, people who don't want to be there at all. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. Trust know, me. And I know. They're just doing their you know their duty, yeah. <laughs> their Christian duty to yeah. teach these little kids. And, yeah. You know, so yeah. So let's get let's get back to you know before we <laughs> got crazy here. Um, you know we can pick this up
0: about, next week too. We can pick. Well, we can also pick this up next week and carry on because we're we, we really just that, barely scratched are really the
1: Yeah, we're already we're actually Close at time, to time here. Yeah.
2: So, so the, but, but the question is, all right, the, the, and, and let's leave it there. Let's let it hang for, uh, for a week. The Logos in Christ, the Logos became flesh and dwell among us, um, not the Logos became a book and got bound in leather. <laughs> You
0: know. Or like... not logos became a man. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sarks, not hoanthropos. Yeah. Yeah, let's talk about it. that'll be fun.
1: That sounds yeah. good. Alright. Well thanks for tuning in everybody, and we will continue this conversation next week.